Thank you, Tim, for leading us into God's presence. I love saturating in God. Right before we move into the message this morning, let's pause a moment and listen to the Holy Spirit. Let your own heart quiet and try to recognize God's movement within you. For some, there may be a sense of desolation or dryness. God may be moving you away from certain attitudes or temptations, and that's a hint to move away from that. For others, you may be experiencing the consolations of his love. God may be reinforcing victories and right choices. And so I'm just going to pause a moment and let you sense in the Lord what he's doing in your heart and prepare your heart for the word. So let's just pause a moment and then I'll pray and we'll move into the word. Hallelujah, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would begin to move now as we head toward your word and examining your word. We ask that you would be speaking. I pray specifically for all my friends as we're sharing the word together that there would be a touch, if necessary, a breaking, or there may be bondage or habits. There would be encouragement, hope, and strength as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so today we're going to look at power. The power corrupts, the saying goes. I will admit that sometimes in our kitchen, especially late at night, it gets a little cynical. Could we possibly, as a nation, have leaders who are personally moral and socially just? Could it happen? Just imagine. <laughs> but you know, Jeremiah faced this as well with kings who were corrupt or weak or foolish or a toxic mix of all three. When you're in that kind of a mess, how do you discern truth? In other words, how can we figure out what to do in a fallen world. So our next segment of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapters 21, 22, and 23, surveys God's judgment and then his hope for leadership in Israel. So Jeremiah will give us several lessons on leaders. What are those lessons on leaders? Several lessons we'll look at today. The first lesson, fairly obvious but uh, important, is that good leaders are both just and merciful. So what happens in chapter 21, which we're not actually look at today, is that the last king of Judah asks for mercy, and God says, nope, not going to happen. It's too late. And so uh, we'll learn more about that later in the narratives about Zedekiah, who was one son of Josiah. But then in chapter 22, we have an oracle, a message, that really deals with all five of the last five kings of Judah, Josiah and uh, three, three of his sons and one grandson, and kind of deals with a holistic picture of these kings. The only bit of light is the first two verses I'll read to you. So in chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, to give you context, I'll just tell you it's about Josiah. And so it says here, speaking to Jehoiakim, one of his sons, does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just. And so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Declares the Lord. 
And there may be possibly the only two verses in Jeremiah that have anything positive to say about kings. It's a rebuke of Jehoiakim, who is also known as Eliakim, if you know the book of Kings well. The verses are about his father, Josiah. Josiah was just, verse 15, and Josiah defended the powerless, verse 16. Now these are two basic functions of government, right? Any government, justice and to defend the powerless. We know that he was also a powerful religious reformer, but here Jeremiah is focusing on his role as a king, as government, justice and protection of the vulnerable in society. So this is the standard. Give you a quick survey of the rest. Well, the last four kings of Judah. Shalom is mentioned in verse 11, who is also known as Jehoahaz. He's the son of Josiah. He's the fourth son of Josiah. But when Josiah dies, he's the one that they put in charge. He's clearly the one that has the confidence of the people. He reinforces Josiah's uh, political stand against Egypt. And uh, he comes into power, but he is taken out of power by the Egyptians within three months. And he's deposed by Pharaoh. And so uh, then he, Pharaoh, takes Eliakim or Jehoiakim, who is a major figure in the book of Jeremiah. We'll hear a lot about him in the rest of the spring and summer. He, um, he is Josiah's second son. He pays tribute to Egypt initially, and then later when it's strategic, he pays tribute to Babylon. And so how does he lead in this desperate time? Well, first of all, we know he has to pay a lot of tribute to Egypt. That's just, he's required to do that. But then in chapter 22, read verses 13 and 14. So picture the, the thing here. here here's, he's, he's under Egypt, and Egypt's making him pay a lot of money, and I've already described how they had inflation, all these problems. And what's he going to do when his people are under pressure from Egypt? Is he going to defend them? Is he going to help them? So in 13, he says of Jehoiakim, woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness his upper rooms by injustice. Listen to this. Making his countrymen work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I'll build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Kings gives us the same picture. So here's a guy... He is piloting a sinking ship, and his response is to build a bigger palace. His picture of leadership is abundance and privilege. Later, we'll read this later, but you can read it today if you want in chapter 36. Uh, the, the officials, and some of them feared God, and there's a message from Jeremiah that's written down by Baruch because Jeremiah has been forbidden to enter the temple, so he writes it down, has Baruch read it, right? <laughs> they go in, and they're like, oh, this is really important. Jehoiakim's oh, not going to like it, but he better hear it. So they, hey, you know, Baruch, come here, you know, and, and read it to us. Oh, yeah, 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 we better take this to the king. So they take this message from God to the king, and, well, Jehoiakim wants to hear it too. But, uh, why? So he can listen to it and three lines at a time shave it off with his knife and drop it in his little personal furnace that's keeping him warm. Utter despising of the word of God. 
He's a model of self-serving, corrupt leadership. We've seen it, of course, politically. I hope you've never seen it in the church. Some of you have had to endure that. Then the next king, Jehoiachin, Kaniah, is actually Jehoiakim's son. He becomes king uh, during a siege by Babylon, and probably we suspect that Jehoiakim may have actually been assassinated, either that or committed suicide. So he becomes king just long enough to stand there and be taken captive, so he's king for three months and brought to Babylon. So again, like Jehoiakim, uh, not much power. But then the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, reigns for 11 years. He's the third son of Josiah. And this weak young king is really one of the more fascinating studies in the book of Jeremiah. We'll be looking at it carefully. Uh, He wants to listen to Jeremiah, but he's got these nobles that he's relating to that are convinced that somehow they're the righteous remnant and God's going to deliver us and we're going to see a miracle, just like Hezekiah. And of course they don't. He listens to them. He runs and he's blinded and brought into captivity. So it's a mess. Poor leadership damages people. Wicked leadership certainly being the worst, but weak leadership being not much better. Well, the lesson is that we need just and merciful leaders, but there aren't very many, right? (laughs) Israel didn't have many, and uh, today it's the same. So what are we going to do? Well, certainly we should aspire to be godly leaders, those of us that have responsibility, do the best we can. But the reality is that this world is fallen, And there is problems and difficulties in leadership. What is the biblical answer? Well, if you read all of chapter 22, you come to the end of the chapter, you get to chapter 23, and you find God's solution for failed leaders. You could read later today all of verses 1 to 8, but we'll just read together verses 5 and 6. Here's God's solution to failed human leadership. The days are coming, declares the Lord, When I'll raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Wow. Now there's a little pun going on here and... uh, I know a few of you know a little bit of Hebrew. So who's the king when this message comes forth? Well, we found out in chapter 21, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah's name is, is, comes and derived from the word for righteousness, Zedekiah. And so they're saying, you know, Zedekiah, <laughs> Zedekiah is not very righteous, but there's going to come a king who really will have the name of tzedakah, righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness. He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Strong hint of deity, although not explicit, of course. The Lord, our righteousness is a beautiful phrase that really brings to mind the Pauline idea of our, he, is, he is our righteousness. In other words, he makes us and gives us Righteousness, a conferred righteousness, a declaration of righteousness that indeed Jesus brought. And Jeremiah here is also building on the uh, famous righteous branch prophecy of Isaiah 11. I'll read that to you. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots 
a branch will bear fruit. And if you know Isaiah 11, that's a messianic prophecy. The word for branch is different, but Jeremiah is clearly building on Isaiah as Zechariah later in the restoration period will continue to build on this image of the Messiah as a righteous branch from which life will come. And then if we were to go on and read in verse 8, actually a second exodus is, is promised, an exodus from Babylon, the, the land of the north, so that in this passage, there's really two prophecies. One is of the Messiah, which will come eventually, and we know, of course, came in Jesus Christ. But there's also a prophecy of something that will happen really just about 70 years later, that they will, in fact, be delivered from where some of them are already in captivity, and more will soon be in captivity in Babylon. But Jeremiah says a little bit later, very specifically, in 70 years God will bring you back. And so, interestingly, if you study prophecy, sometimes you wonder, how did the guys, you know, there's a lot of prophets, right? There's actually more bad prophets in Jeremiah's time than there were good prophets, right? The good guys are, let's see, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and maybe there's a couple others I'm forgetting, Zephaniah might probably still around, and maybe Nahum. Uh, But most of these guys are yes men, And they're rah-rah, yeah, God's going to go, we're the righteous remnant, God's going to deliver us, and everything's going to be great, which they were wrong. So how do we have Jeremiah's writings and not theirs? Well, first of all, what Jeremiah said came true. Now, what Jeremiah said about Messiah hadn't come true by the time the Old Testament was, was collected, but that they returned from Babylon had come true. So with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, to some extent the minor prophets, they are included in the Bible because, first of all, the prophecies came true. Secondly, they preached in a very specific way, which we'll examine later. So, second exodus from Babylon, 70-year prophecy, uh, and what, what he's saying is, we need a Messiah. <laughs> we need a Savior. Now, this is so basic, but it needs to be said I love my country. Uh, I love the United States. I'm a loyal citizen. But friends, all human governments will ultimately fall. Every attempt, monarchy, democracy, republican, have one fatal flaw. Us. (laughs) Right? We're corrupt. We're fallen. And so we need a savior. And so I'm not saying don't be uninvolved in politics or apolitical, but we surely need a right perspective. Our faith and our hope in Messiah is far more fundamental than any politics. And really, believers, although they certainly can hold different opinions, should never be breaking fellowship over matters that will not matter in eternity. But what does this mean then? Well, first of all, let's set our Let's set our hope fully on Christ. I mean, hallelujah, right? We are preparing for a coming kingdom that will never end. Every government will fail except the government of God. That's the message of the book of Daniel. Secondly, make sure you know this Savior, Jesus Christ. So the second lesson, we need a Savior. We need a righteous ruler. Well, that sounds great, but there's a problem, right? We got a Savior, Governments aren't perfect, but we still are here, right? We got to do something. We got to figure out what to do uh, in the meantime. And so Jeremiah 23, the rest of the chapter deals with this. It's a long chapter. I won't read every verse to you. We'll give you kind of a summary. 
so this third issue then is that prophetic voices must be discerned. And as I just mentioned to you, the majority of the prophets in Jeremiah's time were wrong. Now, COVID-19, there has been an explosion of prophetic activity in the body of Christ, and people are putting prophecies up online and all that, and I think that's fine. But we have to discern what is the voice of the Lord. What is genuine prophetic ministry, and what is just somebody's idea, right? So let's make two lists. You can write it down if you want. We are dealing with all of Jeremiah 23, verse 9, through the end of the chapter, verse 40. And I just went through, and I'll just give you a few highlights of the characteristics of the false and the true prophets. So look at verse 16. He says, Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They will fill you with false hopes, visions from their own minds, not from the mind, mouth of the Lord, all right? So false hopes and visions from their own minds. Be so careful. That's going to be hard. You're going to have to try to be discerning. Is this really based in Scripture, or is this somebody's clever, neat idea, right? Similar to that, verses 30 to 32, I won't read all of it, but it says here, um, uh, verse 30, therefore declares the Lord, I'm against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. That's hilarious, right? I mean, <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, this is before copyright laws, but they still are you know, stealing from each other, right? I don't know. And, uh, and verse 32, I'm against the prophets who prophesy false dreams. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies. So again, they're not cautious and wise then here, this is clearer now. The next one is very clear. Look at verse 17, and this is one of my greatest concerns. Listen to this. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. Talk about cheap grace. Second characteristic of false prophecy is peace without repentance. You know, I think even some Christians need to hear this. The peace that Christ promises is profound. And none of us are perfect, and you can be forgiven every day. But there is no peace in Christ without repentance. If you have to repent five times a day, there's peace. But there's no peace without repentance. Verse 27, they dull the vision of true, the true God. It says here, they think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name just as their fathers forgot my name through Baal worship. In other words, they are deliberately preaching a less holy, less demanding God knowing and thinking that they can dull the vision of the true God. And then I will not read it, but you could read all of chapter 23, verses 33 to 40, and it describes a very interesting practice. They are using the prophets like a horoscope. In other words, it's the sort of thing where you go and you say, well, I wonder whether I'm supposed to buy this cow or not. Can I get a word from the Lord? Right? Now, I've seen things frighteningly close to that sometimes in the Christian church. 
Why would a true prophet not do that? Well, we'll talk about that. Let's look at the true prophets. Characteristics of a true prophet, verse 18, says, But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? So there is a dwelling in the word of God, the counsel of the Lord, and a waiting before God. I'm not denying there's a prophetic anointing, right? It's not just exegesis, but there is a a sitting in the counsel of the Lord, sitting in the word of God, waiting before God and, and asking the question, Lord, how does this apply prophetically to your people, right? And that's, an, that's a correct question to ask. But it's not someone, it's someone who's sitting in the counsel of the Lord. And they are saturated with truth. And they're just filled with the truth of the word of God. And what comes out of their mouth prophetically then is in line with the word of God. And then verse 22, very profound. He says, if they'd done this, if they'd stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and their evil deeds. Genuine prophecy will call people out of darkness into light every time. It doesn't have to be condemnatory. It shouldn't be condemnatory. It can be gracious and kind. But genuine prophetic ministry will always call us away from worldliness and into godliness. And then verse 29. This is really a sign. Some of you have experienced this, hearing the word of the Lord, and some of you have experienced it giving the word of the Lord. He says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? I'll tell you what. The genuine word of God does not leave you unchanged. There is a fire that burns and a hammer that breaks hardness. In contrast to the horoscope-like use of prophecy, and I I think that there's an area of wisdom here. Uh, It can be tempting, and I I know people, some are very anointed and and uh, they're very good and they're close to the Lord, they're filled with the word, but there can be a temptation to let people become dependent on you. But a genuine prophetic ministry just like any of the fivefold ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, what does Paul say about them? Not, oh, all five of you do that until Jesus comes back. He says, do that for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, so that really, ultimately, we would not need them, right? The fivefold ministry. And I think, well, here, you're, you're, you're here every week preaching the word. Yeah, but you know what? As a church becomes mature, they may want a pastor, but they don't need a pastor in the same way. I saw this when I was down in uh, Mankato. Uh, it was part of a, a small church that died, actually. And as a result of that, while continuing to do student ministry, I became part of a, of a larger church in uh, St. Peter, Minnesota, actually. And uh, I'd always been a part of Sojourn Campus Church from the very beginning, just a really young church. And, and honestly, we were fairly pastor-dependent. Although we taught discipleship and we had small groups, there was a much greater dependency on the primary leader. No fault to him, just nature of being a younger church. So anyway, this church I was a part of in St. Peter, the last year I was involved in ministry there, the pastor felt led to leave. And I was like, whoa, that's pretty weird. There was nothing wrong with the church. Everything's going great. I was like, huh, okay. Anyway, but anyway, he did that. That People do that, I guess, sometimes. And I don't, but some people do it. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, and I watched that church. And, you know, the elders are like these old guys, you know, 
I thought they were old then. Anyway, they're probably my age now. But anyway, they're, and they're like, well, the Lord, you know, uh, he's, uh, we need to pray for a pastor, you know. And so they had all these small groups and they had prayer meetings and, and people were preaching and everything was, and I realized, <laughs> these guys don't need a pastor. <laughs> I mean, they're going to get a pastor because they like a pastor. And that's great. And, not probably, you know, and he does things for them, but they don't really need a pastor. See, so even pastoral ministry, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have pastors, and you can have a pastor if you want. I hope you want one because I'm your pastor. <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I'm saying? That, that as we mature as a church, we're not dependent in the same way. So same with prophetic ministry. I, I believe in genuine prophetic ministry, but a wise prophet's not going to create dependency, but it's going to equip people in the word and to know the word of the Lord and to be able to move on, not in dependency. So what about today? Well, again, as I said before, as you may know, prophetic ministry's gone on overdrive during corona, and that's great, but test everything. Test everything by the word of God. Peace without repentance is not God. Rather, words that burn like fire and break up your hardness, prophets who, who equip you to, to hear God yourself and to understand the voice of God, that is genuine prophetic ministry. So Paul says, earnestly desire to prophesy. Those that are involved with sojourn, as we said before, if you send something for the body just because you're not here on a Sunday morning to, to say it, email it, we will share it. We want to be discerning together what God is emphasizing out of his word. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, Paul says, prophecy is necessary for strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Now, that may sound a little soft just in case you're like, well, what about, you know, really getting challenged? Well, the, the word that's translated encouragement can also be translated exhortation. So in other words, sometimes it is kind of a, hey, let's get going, you know, right? And let's get moving. Uh, but Paul is teaching that that must happen, right? And so as well as you're listening to this sermon yeah, you know, there's some teaching here. We looked at Jeremiah. But you want to, in your own life, be listening for, okay, out of all of this, what is God saying to me? What is my point of life and obedience today? How am I supposed to respond to this? That's a part of how we grow. And so we're told in Hebrews 3.13, let's encourage one another as long as it is called today, lest we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need encouragement, strengthening, exhortation. We need words that follow the word of God. We need words that turn people from evil. We need words that burn like fire and like a hammer that breaks hardness. And so prophetic voices must be discerned. Jeremiah looked at Judah and he saw largely failed leadership. We may feel the same way at times in our lives. So what do we do in this fallen world? First of all, we cling to the one righteous one, the one reliable, safe leader, the one who will never let you down, Jesus Christ. And we encourage you to stay so close to Jesus. If you don't know him, uh, you can always connect with him by simply saying, I'm sorry for living life independently of you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Please make me your man or woman of God. Turn from what you know is wrong and trust in him. He'll give you new life. It's the most crucial decision you could make. But secondly, let's earnestly encourage one another. We're, we're separated physically right now in these days, but let's earnestly encourage 
and desire genuine ministry sharing the truth of God that breaks and burns until all the slug is <laughs> burned away and we see the image of God in his people. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you that your desire for your people is to stir, to bring life, to bring encouragement, to help us to walk in obedience and faith. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives this morning. Help us to let you burn off the chaff and the, the extraneous stuff that won't matter in the long run. Break where we've come a little hard. Help us to hear your heart and to live in your peace in these days. Father, I pray for those that are wrestling for peace and maybe they're anxious about health or just, just stir-crazy in their home. We do pray that as we simply surrender our lives to you, that you will, your peace will rule in apartments. Your peace will rule in households. Your peace will rule in the hearts of parents with young children. Your peace will rule in those who maybe are more isolated, living alone. And we ask your grace and your peace to rest on us all. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.